Africa to the smallest enclaves of Central America and the Caribbean and is available on SoundCloud, iTunes Podcast, and Google Play Music. The Latino Media Collective is recorded in WPFW Studios and airs Fridays at 1 p.m. on WPFW Washington. Welcome to On the Margin with E. Ethelbert Miller. My guest today is Elijah Wall. Elijah Wall is a folk blues guitarist, music historian, and journalist. He's the author of Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson and the Invention of the Blues. His forthcoming book, Jelly Roll Blues, Censored Songs and Hidden Histories, will be released this spring. How are you doing today, Elijah? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is a joy. This is a joy. And I get to talk to you again in May. So this is this is nice. Um, Elijah, you spent most of your life listening to, reading about, and playing the blues. How has this music shaped your view on life? How has it helped you better understand love and loss? I mean, I think you started playing blues guitar in your early teens. Uh-huh. Um, well, I mean, I think the first thing I should say is I, I play an awful lot of different kinds of music. I mean, all the people who we tend to think of as blues players, that's just how they were marketed. I mean, all of them were versatile musicians and played a lot of different stuff. And I've tried to do that, too, particularly because a lot of my life um, I was traveling and playing like on streets and in bars and places. And you play what people want to hear. That's the job. As for how it's helped me to deal with love and loss, um, I have to tell you honestly, the moment came when, as as the song lyrics say, my baby left me and I was heartbroken. And I hoped that if it did nothing else, at least it would make me a better blues singer. But it didn't. It, there was nothing good to be said about it. <laughs> you know, I, think of the, I think of the blues line, though, the blues ain't nothing but a good woman on your mind. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, actually there's a quote that I read when I was when I was a kid that had a lot of impact on me for from, of all people, Bob Dylan, um, saying the problem with most white blues singers is that white blues singers try to get into the blues, whereas the whole point of it was you sang that to get out of the blues. And I think that there is, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You see people like trying to get into the deep sadness. And the whole point of the music is to try to get out of that mood. And I mean, if you're in a black club and people are singing songs that to a lot of white people sound really depressing you'll see people laughing at a lot of the lines i mean Mm -hmm. been down so long it looks like up to me people hear a line like that and they laugh Mm -hmm. because you know it's a way of working your way out of that stuff well you know uh, elijah um you write in your introduction um to escaping the delta that in the 1960s uh a world of white and international listeners discovered blues for roughly the last 40 years. And the style has been primarily been played for a white audience. I wonder, explain that, why, why that is. And also, have black people stopped listening to the blues? Um, I mean, there are a lot of different ways of answering that. One of them is to say, white people have done an awful lot to define what they call blues. And my typical answer when people ask you know are black people still listening to blues is well what do you call beyonce i mean country western now (laughs) yeah exactly but i mean there's a direct line from ma rainey and bessie smith Mm -hmm. to billy holiday and dinah washington to aretha franklin to beyonce she's absolutely in a direct line from those early women singers and the fact that at some point marketers decided to give the mainstream of black music a new name mm-hmm. doesn't mean she isn't part of that tradition mm-hmm. so i mean that's the first part of my answer um the second part is uh, you know i don't want to keep going white black white black white black so but i'm gonna do a lot of that and so let me just say we all understand i'm generalizing Right. When I say white, I don't mean all white people. When I say right. black, I don't mean all black people. But as a generalization, white audiences are more comfortable with preserving the black music of the past than with actually being in rooms full of young black people. 
So once blues was defined as the old music, um, that sort of instantly meant that there was a white audience for it and also instantly meant that a lot of young black people weren't interested in it any more than the white people want to listen to their grandparents' music. <laughs> right. It's a you generational know. thing, right? Yeah, I mean, I've been in so many rooms where where a white guy will stand up and say, "So why don't young black people listen to blues?" Mm -hmm. And I say, "Well, same reason you don't listen to Guy Lombardo." <laughs> I mean, most people don't want to listen to their grandparents' music. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's talk a little bit about geography. Um, you, you and you talk about this in the, in terms of the the Mississippi Delta. How does the landscape, this Mississippi Delta, how does it influence the music? Well, in the case of the Delta, it's very, very direct. Because If we're talking about the period when Delta Blues was, was really happening, the, the 20s and 30s, um, the landscape, that had all been swampland. There hadn't been any people there. There were no plantations. There were no big mansions and cotton plantations in the Delta until the beginning of the 20th century when the Army Corps of Engineers built the levees, drained the swamps. And because of that, it was a very young population. Mm -hmm. And the reason you have this explosion of new blues styles is that there were no old people there. It was all young people. It's the same the same thing happened in the 1940s in Los Angeles mm -hmm. where there's suddenly and also in Chicago where there's suddenly these flood of young people coming in mm -hmm. for industrial you, you jobs. Also you also mentioned in, yeah. in your book that uh, there was a high concentration of, of of black people in in the Delta area. Huge, absolutely. Um it was actually funny when I did my blues class I, I was teaching a blues class the, um, what year was it, when Obama was first elected. And I happened to be teaching about Mississippi blues, and you could just pull up the county map of Mississippi mm -hmm. and look at where Obama took the county Thanks. as opposed to where McCain took the county. And those were all the areas where all the blues singers came yeah. from. So it's still true. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, there are these very, very strong concentrations of black people and of young black people. And, you know, it was also a very isolated place in some ways. It wasn't that they weren't getting music in from other places, but there wasn't a lot of professional entertainment coming in because there wasn't a lot of money. So it was also a scene where a lot of people were making their own entertainment. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in chapter five of your book, which I'd like you to read, you, you sort of could give us an overview of, of what you were just talking about. So why, why don't you share with our listeners um, sure. that section? Okay. Um, the Mississippi Delta has produced more than its share of great blues musicians over the years. And there are many people who believe it's where the blues was born. Maybe so in some way. Blues has meant so many different things to so many different people that it's pointless to argue over origins. If I were feeling contrary, I might suggest that the state's reputation is largely founded on the modern revivalist's passion for later Chicago styles. And if the West Coast blues of T-Bone Walker, Lowell Fulson, and Charles Brown were valued alongside Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf, down home could as easily mean Texas or Oklahoma. I could add that in the 1920s and 1930s, None of the blues advertisements took any note of Mississippi roots, while Texas and Georgia birthplaces were cited as selling points. Looking at the list of top pre-war blues stars, they were pretty evenly distributed across the South. Georgia counted for eight names, Tennessee for six, Mississippi for five, Louisiana, Texas, and Kentucky for three each, Arkansas and South Carolina for two each, and there are artists from North Carolina, Florida, Ohio, Missouri, Pennsylvania. Only one of the five Mississippians was born in the Delta. And that one, Big Bill Brunsey, spent most of his youth in Arkansas. All of that being said, the Delta was home to a unique strain of blues music, which has become extremely influential on the modern day scene. And the, the Delta musicians were undoubtedly affected by the special conditions of their home region. 
The Delta was not as isolated and unusual as its myths might suggest, but if we hope to understand something about Robert Johnson, it's worth taking a closer look at this area and its musical taste and the musical tastes of its inhabitants. The Delta, with its vast cotton plantations, devastating floods, and grueling poverty, has become the stuff of myth, and not only because of its music. It has been called the most southern place on earth. And whether that phrase conjures up images of beautiful old mansions, cotton aristocracy, home-style cooking, and Elvis Presley, or the extremes of racism, isolationism, and a social system so archaically unjust as to invite comparisons to medieval feudalism, there's some truth to it. You're listening to Elijah Wall reading from his book, Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson and the Invention of the Blues. Thank you for reading that excerpt. Uh, Elijah gives us a nice context for the music. Um, go. I want to go back to something you, you were talking about earlier um, and about definitions when it comes to explaining music. You write that the term blues is primarily a marketing term. Um, yep. What do you mean about that? And you talk about blues as pop music. <clears throat> what I mean is basically... You know, musician. What musicians want is to work, um, and to get paid, and what record companies want is to sell records. Mm -hmm. And so, if there is a market for blues music, people will call their music blues. For example, if there are blues festivals, and people want to work those festivals, somebody says, "Do you play blues?" They'll say, "Yeah, of course, I play blues." What they may mean by that, you know, for example, if you go into a, a black club in Chicago that calls itself a blues club, I mean, a genuine black club, like where all the people in it are black, <laughs> what you'll be hearing is basically music like Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, uh, Denise LaSalle, that sort of thing. If you go into a white blues club in Chicago, Again, I'm talking about the audience. The people mm -hmm. on stage will, may well be black. Uh, you'll be talking about Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf. And both of those things, you can call them blues. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you know, that's just a choice. Mm -hmm. I mean, people like Sun House, for example, who taught Muddy Waters. Sun House, when he was asked about blues... Uh, said that there was no blues around in the Delta when he was growing up, that he didn't hear blues until they started getting records of Bessie Smith. Mm -hmm. Now, that sounds crazy to us because yeah, the, right. the music he grew up with is what we call blues. Right. But he called that music reels. He, he right. got the word blues when he got the records in. Hmm. But I'm going to use myself as, a, as an example. Um, yeah. And maybe this says something about my, my household. Uh, with my father came from Panama, didn't come from the South. But I didn't know about Sun House until I was a student at Howard University. Of and course. one of my mentors, Stephen Henderson, you know, was playing Sun House and just raving about Sun House. But I, I didn't know Sun House, okay? Muddy Waters is the only actual musician that I, blues music, that I sat in a hotel room and talked with. You know, other than that, I'm listening to maybe, I'm reading your book. <laughs> you know uh-huh. You know, and, and I just wonder about that when I'm saying about people listening. It, it's, sure. We talk about it, but not necessarily. And we might be listening to Otis Redding or Marvin Gaye, but we're not listening to, like, say, Howling Wolf. We're not listening to Sunhouse. That's what I'm talking about. You know, except the people who are. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Um, I mean, the thing to remember is that at the time that those people were most popular, I mean, there was a time in the 1950s when Howling Wolf and Muddy Waters were on the radio all across the country right. and on the mainstream black radio, but they were never as big stars as people like Dinah Washington. Well, let's have me ask you something, because but I want to ask you about radio. But I remember this real significant change from AM to FM. Where like yes. FM was FM was like playing classical music, you know. Like you might have a small AM station in Arkansas where you still hear the music. What about that? Oh, that was a huge thing. Um, I mean, there were there were several degrees of changes. I mean, the first, if we're going to really talk the history in radio, the huge shift is when television came in mm. and radio stopped being a major national medium. 
I mean, radio up through the 1940s was mostly big national networks. And what happened is when television came in, television took over the national networks and suddenly radio had to find new markets. And that's how rhythm and blues and rock and roll and all of that happens because all the radio stations are suddenly looking for audiences that aren't being served by television. Mm. So you start getting radio stations hiring black DJs to play black music because they want local advertisers and mm. local audiences. Well, well, let's follow that logic, which you just outlined. Yeah. And let's follow the technology and bring it up to 2024. Absolutely. If I follow what you're saying, it seems now there would be an opportunity to create new blues channels. That if you which, just wanted to hear blues, you could just go straight to it. Well, which there is. I mean, there are satellite channels that play blues all the time. I mean, I walk into bars these days and they're just playing a blues mix. Um the bars I'm talking about are, you know, in are honestly are are white blues clubs in suburbs. <laughs> but yes, you now can get that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you certainly have lots of R and B channels. And let's not forget that R and B, the B stands for blues. Blues, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about um, moving. You, you underscore in in your book that musicians like Robert Johnson were professional artists who listened to all types of music. We were talking about yep. about yourself. Um, what what is the stereotype of the blues musician, and where did that come from? Yeah. Um, well, that changed over the years. I mean, the original stereotype when it was still black music was that it was somebody who wore a nice suit and made good money and all the women were after him. Or if it was a woman, wore fancy ball gowns. And, you know, I mean, Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith were spectacular figures. <laughs> uh, what happened then in later years was there was an audience that began defining blues as that man, you know, hopping freight trains and walking (laughs) down the old dusty highway with his guitar slung over his shoulder. And people began talking about that as if that was the real blues. And Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey were like a stage professional version of that thing. Um, which is completely backwards because those guys who were walking down the highway with their guitars over their shoulders were singing songs they'd learned off Ma Rainey and Betsy Smith <laughs> records a lot of the time. I mean, this is the thing, you know, I think, and this is not just about race. This is the whole idea of folk culture. Right. The idea of folk culture is invented by city people to describe this romantic idea they have of what those uneducated people are doing out in the country before they get spoiled by mm-hmm. city life. And I mean, if you're from Panama, you know, this is as yeah. true in Panama as mm-hmm. it is anywhere mm-hmm. else. It's true mm-hmm. everywhere in the world mm-hmm. that people in the city have this idea that people in the country are well, still look, living in their past. Right, right. You well, know? Let's, <laughs> right. well, let's look at something. You were talking about television. How much, say, for example, and we don't even have to go back that far. If we look at film, h- yeah. how does film present like the blues? I mean, is, is there any um, film that you say, okay, this perpetuates a stereotype or this really captures the blues um, figure? Um. Oh, boy. There are so, so, so many. Um, It's funny. I mean, one that for me really kind of worked is a film called Cadillac Blues that's okay, a documentary Blues, right. about chess records. Right. I love Holly, most, the guy who played Holly Wolf in that movie. <laughs> yeah. And and with Beyonce oh, playing at a James. Right. And she's spectacular. And most deaf, right. uh, Talib Kwele playing uh, Chuck Berry. No, it's a great cast. Um, and Jeffrey Wright. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people, a lot of blues historians hate that movie because a lot of the facts are wrong. Mm. But I think it captured, you know, I I have my problems with it too, but I think it captured an awful lot that was right. Mm -hmm. Um, There are things that weren't right. I mean, Howling Wolf shows up from 
Memphis in, in overalls driving a pickup truck. I'm sorry. <laughs> Howling Wolf was wearing a very nice suit and driving a Cadillac. <laughs> so, again, that's an example of the stereotype. What about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, um, August Wilson, the play then made into the film with Chaz? I think it's a I think it's a terrific play, and I I really like the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was really powerful. Again, I know historians who quibble with it, but I thought it was terrific. Okay. Well, let's, is it is it correct to call W. C. Handy the father of the blues? Ah uh-huh. ha. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I'm sorry. My my problem, is, my students hate me. My answer to every question is it's more complicated than that. <laughs> um, That's why I'm going to invite you back in May for another show. Yeah. Uh, the thing on W.C. Handy, W.C. Handy was absolutely open about what he did. What he said was there was all this music that was floating around. And I am the person who put it together in a formal form that could be marketed on sheet music. And that was the beginning of blues. Before that, it was just folk songs. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, he's right. I mean, people weren't calling that music blues until the word became popular as a marketing term. And he was absolutely the first person to get national hits Mm-hmm. called blues mm-hmm. how how well is his memory preserved that's a good question i don't know how many people know wc handy's name and i think a lot of people who do he often is kind of dismissed for exactly the reason i just said as someone who just commercialized it and wasn't the real thing but he was hugely, hugely influential. I have no idea what world we would be living in mm. if it wasn't for Memphis blues and St. Louis blues and the, the things that, w, particularly those two, but also he had a publishing company. I mean, he made blues a formal style of music. And I don't know what would have happened if he hadn't. Mm. He also did interesting things. I mean, St. Louis blues, Memphis blues became the soundtrack to the Foxtrot, which was the most popular dance in America. And the tango was coming in as a big trend in New York. And so Handy, the next blues he wrote, he wrote a blues with a middle section that was a tango Mm. for dancers. I mean, he was writing, you know, he was a very, very smart marketer. And he really did put it on the map. Mm. You know, um, I, I want to also move into this issue of, of class, um, and I want to look at it in terms yeah. of we look at the 1920s and we see the you know the radio and with the blues singers, but we also know that periods will also call it the Harlem Renaissance, the New Negro Movement. And, and I recall a, um, <laughs> an anecdote by, by the great poet Sterling Brown. He said that Elaine Locke, who's considered like key to the to the Harlem Renaissance movement. He said, if Elaine Locke um, heard somebody singing blues in the, in, in, in the alley, he went to the window and closed, pulled the window down. <laughs> he didn't want to hear the blues. And I just wonder about, here we have this new Negro, you know, but then we also have this, you know, people listening to the blues. And what about the issue of class within the Black community? Yeah, that was a big one. Um, it really, In terms of the Harlem Renaissance, it depended on the person. Of course, Langston Hughes right. was deeply interested in blues and was writing in blues forms but then, um, let's, but then look at him his mother was a theater person he was really going to some of the shows on you know he's getting it, the, the, it through that way in terms of like the um um vaudeville and stuff like that he he liked the theater because i know that his mother was always taking him so i think it as opposed to listening to the blues and then he also talked and i think in the big c that when he was in high school he heard people coming up from the south and how they talked, and how, so I'm looking at how he's studying the blues, but actually experiencing it too. Getting back to what you were talking about earlier in the show, yeah, no, it, it's complicated because I think Langston Hughes, because he's a northerner, has some of the same fascination. He's from the middle of the country now. <laughs> yeah, okay, you're right. But for example, he's in a very different situation than Zora Neale Hurston. Mm-hmm. who is growing up in Florida and for whom folklore is something that, you know, she knows from her childhood. 
um, or than uh, Ralph Ellison, who actually is a blues trumpet player. The Oklahoma I mean, when Ralph guy. El- yeah, and when Ralph Ellison talks about blues, mm-hmm. what he means is what Count Basie plays. Mm. Because... You know- you know, I'm, glad you bro- right. I'm glad you bring that Ellison because I remember Ellison critiquing blues people by Baraka saying that, you know, um, he even gives the blues the blues. <laughs> you know, he didn't like the fact that that Baraka was looking at it in terms of sociology and not necessarily music. Well, and also it's it's that thing about, you know, is blues what Count Basie plays or or is blues what those poor folk down in Mississippi play? And. As you say, that's a class thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and it's a class thing that sort of works backwards. You know, there's a level, first of all, I mean, there's a level of the upper middle class or the middle class black who want nothing to do with blues. I mean, you have to, you know, people forget at this point, but back in the 1930s and 1940s, there was a, still a huge black classical music scene. I mean, there was a huge scene in New York, in wa- particularly Washington, D.C., in Philadelphia, where there were black symphonies, there were black string quartets. And there was definitely a part of the black middle class who that was what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Next to that was Duke Ellington. And then and Nat King Cole. And that was the respectable black, you know, that was another level of respectable black music. And then, and you keep, you know, and a lot of those people, they don't want to hear about Howling Wolf and, mm-hmm. and Muddy Waters. Well, 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 well Elijah, Elijah will talk about the blues as dance music. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the blues was originally dance music. That's what you know, people like the oldest memories, the people in New Orleans who talk about blues, what they mean is a slow dance rhythm. It was blues and slow drag were synonymous. And that was just the term for the slow, sexy. I mean, we have to, the, the book we're going to talk about next time gets much more into that part of it. That blues was also very much associated with lower class and with bars and with sex and with sexy dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, W.C. Handy, as I say, is the foxtrot. You know, then you get swing, which was completely based on blues. I mean, the defining swing orchestra was Count Basie, who played overwhelmingly blues. I mean, mm-hmm. all the big Count Basie hits. One O'Clock Jump is blues. Going to mm-hmm. Chicago is blues. Mm-hmm. Um, rock and roll. All of Little Richard's hits are straight 12-bar blues. Chuck Berry is blues. Um, So, yeah, dancing was absolutely basic to it. Hmm. And that, again, you know, when people, when it stopped being dance music, same thing has happened to jazz. When it stopped being dance music, it stopped having that mass audience of young people because young people want to go out and shake it. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, you, you, you mentioned, and I'll ask you one question before I have a, a little break. You mentioned in your book that during the 1920s, a lot of black music still went unrecorded. Why is that? Well, most music always goes unrecorded. Um, but a lot of what was happening in the 1920s is the mainstream was white. They were recording white bands playing all the most the current hits including stuff like wc handy's music and the the record companies thought the white bands are the best bands nobody wants to hear the poorer bands and so they only started recording black music to record stuff that they weren't getting from the white bands so this isn't just about blues. I mean, Fletcher Henderson, who had the most popular black orchestra in the United States, constantly complained that they wouldn't let him record his waltzes and his prettier tunes. All they wanted to hear from him was hot music because they because it was a stereotype. You know, I mean, when, you, when you say that, uh, Elijah War, it, it brings us back to, um, I think you were talking about films. You really see that in Marini's Black Bottom, you know. Yeah. Levy, he wants to, he wants, he has these songs that he wants to record, 
Uh, and then you find at the end, it's a white group that's p playing his music, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the ultimate example of that, the song that um, Robert Johnson recorded is from four until eight. The sheet music for that is a picture of um, Mamie Smith's orchestra. Mm. Except if you know the photograph, it's all exactly the same people, the violinist, the trombone player, but on the sheet music cover, they've made all of the white men. Okay, well, let's stop right there. <laughs> My guests, uh, we'll take a little break. My guest this morning is, is Elijah Wall. He is a folk blues guitarist, music historian, journalist, and we've been discussing his book, um, Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson, Invention of the Blues. My name is Ethelbert Miller. The show's on the margin. The station's WPFW 89.3 FM. Celebrating 20 years, the new African Film Festival presented by AFI and Africa World Now Project brings the vibrancy of African filmmaking from all corners of the continent and across the diaspora to the DMV at the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center in downtown Silver Spring from March 15th to the 28th. The festival features 26 films from 16 countries, including three years' premieres and discussions with filmmakers. Explore the diversity of new filmmaking from Africa at the 2024 New African Film Festival. Tickets and full schedule at afi.com forward slash silver. That's AFI.com forward slash silver or call 301-495-6700, 301-495-6700. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Okay, we're back on the margin with my guest, uh, Elijah Wall, the author of Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson and the Invention of the Blues. Elijah, you are an ethnomusicologist like Alex, Alex Alan Lomax. How important is Lomax's work in helping us understand American music? Um, I mean, first of all, I should say I'm not an ethnomusicologist. Oh, yes, you. Yeah, are, those, those, those labels are thrown out there, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, when I wrote that book, I had not even gone to college. Oh, I mean, don't it, say that. <laughs> it's true. Um, I, you know, my education was playing the music and reading about the music and hanging out with the musicians. Um, Alan Lomax, he and his father were the major folk music collectors. They preserved unbelievable amounts of material, recordings, not just recordings of people's songs, but recordings of people's stories of their lives, photographs. Um, but Elijah, can, stop, I, stop, stop, yeah, stop right, stop yeah. right there, Elijah. But look yeah. at what look at what you've done, okay? You know, you you've written these books, okay? And it seems as if you're drawing, you're drawing on Lomax's work, but you're drawing on a, you're doing a lot of work that some people have not dedicated their time to doing. Yeah, sure. Um, but just in terms of the body of material that was preserved, the Lomaxes, I mean, if if. Like you just said, I draw on a lot of other people's work. They did that basic work that we can all draw on. And I can criticize some of the ways they framed that work. But God bless them. They kept all their original notes and everything. I can go back. If I want to criticize the way they changed things, I can do it because they saved everything and made it available right. for people like me. Right. But that, this is why people like you are so important, because sometimes what happens is they're collecting the data, but still the interpretation might be wrong. You know, the interpretation is going to keep changing forever and ever and okay, ever. Let me, let, me phrase, let me phrase it differently. <laughs> you know, you're in a science class, like a biology class. You have the yeah. lecture, but then you, have, you also have to go to the lab. Okay, yep. or or you're 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 a cultural anthropologist. You have to go into the field. Okay, Lomax did that, but also I look at the fact that you are a musician. You know, yep. sometimes a musician has a better understanding as opposed to somebody who's just studying the music and not. I'm going to say wait, I have a I'm going to say a different understanding. Okay, that's in quotes. Um, because no, because it's an interesting point. I mean, for example, a lot of music musicians are thinking about what they're doing on the stage. And what's actually important is the dancing that's happening out there in the crowd. I think there are things that the dancers understand mm -hmm. that piss the musicians off. You know, the musicians, like 
would like you to be paying more attention to their fancy solo <laughs> and the dancers listening to the drummer and the bass player. <laughs> okay. Well, we're talking about when one side of the blues, um, and you mentioned this in your book, you say one must begin with work songs, moans, and feel hollers. What do we find when we look at them? You, you've written that the blues is most moving when it comes closest to the hollow sound. Well, the first thing to be said on that is that is the thing that is most African about it. I mean, if you listen to music from the United States, music from Panama, music from Brazil, the professional styles sound very different. But if you go back to the way people sing, you're going back to the root. And that's one answer. The other thing is, everywhere in the world, if you go back to how people sing, you're going back to the root. I mean, by now, of course, this has sort of changed, but I'm still old enough that the first music I heard was my parents singing. Mm -hmm. And most people in the world, I mean, the human voice is what touches us most deeply. Well, what about this? And this is sort of, I'm drawing upon maybe Baraka's um, Blues People. Um, you know, he writes about how when that African, you know, who has survived the Middle Passage, when he's here in the in the U.S. now and realizing he's not going back, <laughs> you know, that that's when the blues begins. I that, mean, that you have that you have to have the Middle Passage. You have to have slavery to give birth to the blues, as opposed to, yes, just there's some African links, but the actual thing in terms of that pain, suffering, that middle passage, that institution of slavery, that creates something that's particularly African-American. Um, that absolutely creates something that's particularly African-American. Whether you want to say that that's blues and that the thing that Africans have isn't blues, um, I you know I don't I don't understand the point of having those kinds of uh, no I'm, well, I'm not well, disagreeing with right, you but right. I'm just saying you know I've I've studied music in Africa I mean I went there to study guitar and there are many people in Africa who listen to blues and hear it as something absolutely that they grew up with in their village or their town and I'm not going to say to them, no, 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 what you have isn't blues. Blues right. is an American thing. I mean, I interviewed Ali Farka Toure, who sounded a lot like John Lee Hooker to me. And he says, no, I am the trunk. John mm -hmm. Lee Hooker is only the leaves and the branches. <laughs> I'm not going to have the argument. They're both terrific, deep, brilliant musicians. Okay. Well, talk about... Um... How important are, are barbershops to, 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 to the blues? Oh, well, barbershops. Uh, these are all interesting. These are great questions. I really like this. Um, they were very important to a certain kind of blues. I mean, the kind of blues that people are playing on guitars and mandolins is very much barbershop music. It's a place where men got together without any women and there often was a, a guitar or a mandolin or whatever that would just be hanging on the wall for whoever played it. They were male spaces. And they were male spaces that were more relaxed in a way, in a different way than bars. You know, they were daytime spaces. You could sit around. You could talk about the news. You could play a few songs. Um so blues was certainly played in those contexts. I should again say most of the music black people played in barbershops would have been pop songs. Mm. And that doesn't mean white pop songs. A lot of them were black pop songs. But people forget the barbershop quartet, which if you put the words barbershop quartet into Google images, they'll give you all these pictures of white guys with big mustaches. But barbershop quartet music was black music. The white style was imitated from black quartets. And gospel quartets come out of barbershop quartets. I mean, it 
it was a black male social environment that was incredibly important. But I'll also say blues has always been mostly women's music. Hmm, that's interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but you now you call um, the arrival of Blind Lemon Jefferson a new kind of blues singer. Uh, how did his music reshape the recording industry? That was because nobody thought that everybody thought that women singing with jazz bands mm -hmm. was the most popular thing you could possibly ask for. And the idea that there was an audience that would rather hear somebody just singing with a guitar than singing with a full band blew people's minds. I mean, when the mm -hmm. Lemon Jefferson records came out and they were selling as well as Bessie Smith or Ma Rainey. It, you know, it was like the way people reacted when rock and roll came in. You know, the idea that four guys, you know, that four teenagers singing on a Harlem street corner could sell as many records as the Count Basie band. Well, let me ask like, you about the lyrics, okay? How yeah. different are the lyrics by male blues singers different from the female blues singers, just in terms of lyrics? What are they singing about? They tend to be exactly the same. Like, oh, okay. Um, I mean, they'll, you know, they'll change the gender around, but everybody was copying everybody else's records. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, they, it may be that if you looked at all, I, it's, it's, that's a great question. I've never thought about it. My guess is that if you looked at the numbers, there's probably a higher percentage of sad, slow songs mm. sung by women and of fast, funny songs sung by men. But I think that's partly because the idea of blues, blues, was marketed often with women singers, and men had to come up with clever novelties to break into that market. Mm -hmm. um, but there's plenty of both on both sides. Right. You know, let's we're talking a lot about blues in general, but you know, the subtitle of your book, Escaping the Delta, is Robert Johnson, the Invention of the Blues. So, so let's talk a little bit about Robert Johnson, um, yeah. which is actually the second part of your book. Um, what is the connection between the man and the myth and, and why Robert Johnson, not someone else? Uh, there are a bunch of answers to that. The, I mean, the original thing that's interesting about Robert Johnson is he's the first major artist we have who learned more from records than from the people in his environment. Robert Johnson was somebody who, he arrives quite late. He arrives in 1935, 1936. And he has heard Blind Lemon Jefferson from Texas, Lonnie Johnson from New Orleans, the people he's grown up with in Mississippi, Petey Wheatstraw from St. Louis, Tampa Red from Chicago, and he has studied all those different styles. So unlike the older generation who just played the style from their area, he can play every style of blues that's happening right then from all over the country. He also could play the latest pop songs from Bing Crosby, but we don't have those. So there's that. He also happened to be recorded by ARC, which became Columbia Records, who had the best engineers in the business. So his records sounded good. Mm. And some white people got very excited about him already in the late 30s. So they held on people at Columbia Records, John Hammond specifically. So they held on to the original metal stampers of those records so that we don't have to get old scratchy versions from people's basements. So it mm. sounds great. And then layered on top of that was the fact that he died very young, apparently poisoned in a juke joint by a jealous husband before he'd had any major success. So then you can layer on that this whole mythic story and that was of August, this young guy. That was August 16th, 1938. About that myth that comes in there, what and about this devil. whole thing about the devil and, and, the, and the hellhound? <laughs> the hellhound. I always like the hellhounds. I think I've been followed by a couple of hellhounds in my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that was a popular thing in that moment. One of probably the most popular blues singer in his world 
on records was a guy named P.D. Wheatstraw, who advertised himself as P.D. Wheatstraw, the devil's son-in-law, the high sheriff from hell. Um, So, yeah, Robert Johnson took advantage of some of that and did some of those songs. But, you know, let's remember, again, that stuff, a lot of it was funny. I mean, you can bury my body down by the highway side so my old restless spirit can catch a greyhound bus and ride. <laughs> um, you know, to, there there is an audience that's far enough away from that that they just hear that as sad. Mm-hmm. But if you're in the middle of that, that's a pretty funny lot. Mm-hmm. Well, talk about when you say that, uh, Elijah Wall, talk about the connection between um, vaudeville and, and blues history. Oh, absolutely. Vaudeville and before vaudeville minstrelsy, which, you know, yes, it was racist. A lot of minstrelsy was white people in black makeup, but it also, W.C. Handy um, got all his training in minstrel troops, black minstrel troops. It was the central entertainment thing, and vaudeville carried that on. And a lot of that, all the earliest people who became stars doing blues. Now we're talking before recording. Um, We're talking people like String Beans, who never recorded, but was the first national star who made blues a specialty. He was a comedian. He dressed Mm -hmm. funny, and he did a funny routine, and part of it was singing blues. Mm -hmm. Um, And that always carried through. I mean, I was just watching the B.B. King thing, you know, nobody loves me but my mother, and she might be jiving too. Too, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, talk about, uh, as we come to the end, of, we've got a few more qu- few more questions for you, uh, Elijah Wall. Um, and this sort of goes back to an earlier question. Talk about the impact of, of the blues on, like, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, and, and whether that was, you know, people who were either working-class British people or... Irish, actually, not necessarily British, but Irish, that had a certain sense in terms of uh, common sensibility? Um, well, first of all, the thing about the Rolling Stones to be all of those British groups is that they were coming out of a period where England had been bombed to pieces. It was very poor. Everything was rationed. It was very dark. It was very cold. It was very gray and boring, and they were seeing all these movies of America and Elvis Presley and Bill Haley and all of these things, and it was all young and, and exciting. And, and Little Richard. And little, well, later Little Richard, Little Richard. but I mean, the, fir- the movies that are first coming in, and and cowboy movies. I mean, mm. you know, Keith Richards, the the guitarist for the Rolling Stones. You mentioned Stones. Gene Autry in your book. Right. Keith Richards was wanted to do Gene Autry. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, they were little boys who wanted to be cowboys and go to the United States and be Elvis Presley, and all of that was mixed together for them. And for them, Elvis, not Elvis, but like, particularly the Rolling Stones, they were into the chess record sound, mm. which for them was Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and Howling Wolf and Muddy Waters, which in the United States, Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley were a completely different generation and a different world from Howling Wolf and Muddy Waters. But to them, that was all one thing. And as you say, you know, they were a lot of, I mean, Mick Jagger was not at all a working class kid. They were pretty middle class. The Beatles were mostly middle class, except for Ringo. But for example, Eric Burden, in the animals mm-hmm. was really working class and you see that difference when he what comes about, to what the about van, what about van morrison i always found him um he's a little bit later and he's coming i mean i don't actually know his background but i'm just gonna give me one minute on eric burden because okay, sure. he's interesting because he when he came to the united states insisted on that they play the apollo theater mm-hmm. because he said if they don't accept what I'm doing at the Apollo Theater, I have no business doing it. And he then, as soon as the animals broke up, formed the band War. He got himself a black band because, again, you know, if I love this music, Mm -hmm. 
you know, he, and I think that's partly because he was working class. So he felt it in a direct way, not as much an outsider romanticizing it as saying, if I'm going to be part of this world, I need to genuinely be able to be part of this world. And if I can't hack that, I shouldn't be doing this. That's interesting because there's a line by Baraka where he raises one of his poems, are there blues singers in, in, in Russia? You know, he raises this sort of, and I, I guess today there are. <laughs> well, or you could say there always were. I mean, there yeah. always, everywhere in the world, there are people who are singing the deep, I mean, Paul Robeson mm-hmm. used to say the only true blues sensibility, I, and before him, James Reese Europe, said maybe the only people who really feel this depth Mm. and have it in their music are the Russian peasants and the Mm. African-Americans. That's very interesting. As we come to the end of our show, um, Elijah Wall, um, you've taught classes on the blues. Uh, What are three things you would want your students to understand and come away with? Um, Boy, that's a great question. Uh, the first thing is that I I think it's important for them to understand that the people who were listening to blues when it was popular music were people as young as them and were people who were as excited by it as they are by their music, that this was not ever something intended to be in a museum and a college class. Mm-hmm. Um The second thing which I'd say for any teaching any students about any kind of music is to find the stuff that excites them. And if it's not the stuff I'm most excited about, that's because we're different people. But don't let me tell them what they should like in blues. Find what what speaks to them. Um, And beyond that, I would just say, don't get hung up on the word. If if they want to say... You know, if they want to say something else speaks to them more, you know, if they want to say, look, for me, rap is the thing that really is the African-American music. You know, that's the real black music for me. I'm going to say, fine, that's your blues. And mm-hmm. don't get hung up on the fact that somebody else tells you that isn't blues. If if you think that's blues, that's your blues. Okay. Well, you know, what we, as we come to the end of the show... In film, we always have the, the, the movie trailer, okay? So you're going to be back as my guest on May 9th to talk about Jelly Roll Blues, Census Song, and Hidden History. Give us a little trailer of what you will be talking about. Yeah, well, what happened was there were these Jelly Roll Morton recordings that he made in the 1930s talking about what he grew up hearing and what he grew up singing at the turn of the century, and they couldn't be released until after rap had happened. They couldn't be released till the 1990s because he was using the language that people use in gangster rap, and it was hidden away because it was considered obscene and couldn't be put out. And that got me thinking, wait a minute, so there's this whole language that was the original language of blues that was completely censored and completely hidden. And so what you're happens- telling me you're telling me this now, Elijah Wall. So now now I can say, well, I have to reconsider inviting you back on May 9th because you'll be talking about stuff we shouldn't be. We, I have a PG show. <laughs> I, I and I have a PG version of the talk, but I must warn people the book is R-rated from beginning to end. You know, like I could talk with you about gangster rap, right, right. but you ain't gonna play the records of the show. <laughs> And the same is true with the blues that I that I talk about in that book. And my point is that when you censor all of that, you're not just censoring the language. You're censoring the stories people are telling. And there's a whole world there that if you start going past that and unpacking that, you can learn about a whole world that was censored. Well, that's a very good way to end our show. Elijah Wall, I want to thank you for all of your comments. Uh, my guest today has been Elijah Wall, folk blues guitarist, music historian, and journalist. We've been discussing his book, Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson and the Invention of the Blues. Um, Elijah Wall will be back as my guest on May 9th, and we'll discuss, can we say it? Jelly Roll Blues, Census Song, and Hidden <laughs> Histories. So thank you very much. The show's on the margin. My name is Ethel Brett Miller. The station's WPFW 89.3 FM.
economic, political, and military decisions in Washington, D.C. impact this entire country and world. And yet corporate media offers few facts, history, or people's voices about these important issues impacting our lives. I'm Esther Ivarum. Welcome to On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital, here on WPFW 89.3, Fridays at 10 a.m. We cover local, national, and international social justice activism, including those who come to D.C. from across the nation or from across the world to speak truth to power. Whether it's the war machine, climate change, the movement for black lives, health care, education, the economy, housing, voting, corporate power, immigration, criminal justice, or environmental justice. Check out On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital, Fridays at 10 a.m. Here on your station for jazz and justice. The Collision, where sports and politics smash. Thursdays at 10 a.m. and on iTunes and Google Play. WPFW, Washington, D.C. Celebrating 20 years, the new African Film Festival presented by AFI and Africa World Now Project brings the vibrancy of African filmmaking from all corners of the continent and across the diaspora to the DMV at the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center in downtown Silver Spring from March 15th to the 28th. The festival features 26 films from 16 countries, including three years premieres and discussions with filmmakers. Explore the diversity of new filmmaking from Africa at the 2024 New African Film Festival. Tickets and full schedule at afi.com forward slash silver. That's AFI.com forward slash silver or call 301-495-6700, 301-495-6700. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Peace, everyone. I'm Brother Jamil, and in the Yardbird Suites, tradition established by our dear brother Askia Muhammad, we continue every Tuesday morning from 5 to 8, playing some things you've never heard before and also playing some old favorites. But we invite you to join us each and every Tuesday as we have an audio family reunion right here on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington. Peace. Sego, this is John Kane, and I want to invite you to join me right here on WPFW on Fridays at 2 p.m. for Let's Talk Native. I will deliver guests and commentary each week on the real-life issues facing Native people. No romanticizing and no Hollywood stereotypes here. We'll talk real history and culture and life as it is and as it should be. Our shows are available as podcasts on your favorite podcast platforms and as videos on our Let's Talk Native TV YouTube channel. Find links and more at our website, www.letstalknative.com. And I'll see you here Fridays at 2 p.m. for Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Still, it's a real good bet the best is yet to come. Hi, this is Robin Holden, the proprietor of Robin's Place. Every Friday evening from 7 until 10 p.m., Robin's Place is a mythical entertainment center consisting of four floors. On each floor of Robin's Place, we have rooms that are named after people who I think are icons in music, theater, and literature. We have the Nancy Wilson Room, the Joe Williams Room, the Gloria Lynn Room, the Frank Sinatra Room, the B.B. King Blues Room, the James Baldwin Library, just to name a few. Join me Friday nights from 7 until 10 p.m. as I take you on a musical journey you'll never forget. Robin's Place. Come the day you fly. I'm going to teach you to fly. Yeah. No social justice issue or movement can escape the spotlight of the Latino Media Collective. The Latino Media Collective delivers consequential coverage from the biggest countries in South America to the smallest enclaves of Central America and the Caribbean. 